This is The Guardian. Today, unprecedented protests in Israel, escalating violence in the West Bank, and the extremist forces driving both. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Every time there's some kind of attack committed by a Palestinian against an Israeli settler living in the West Bank, the local Palestinian community will will brace itself for basically revenge attacks. The Israeli army even has a name for this. They call it price tag attacks. Bethan McKernan is The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent. A few days ago, she heard news that a suspected Palestinian gunman had attacked some Israelis living in a settlement on Palestinian land. So there were two Israeli brothers who were shot dead when they were driving through Huara on Sunday afternoon. This is where the attack happened, in the town of Huara in the occupied West Bank. Two brothers from a nearby illegal Israeli settlement were shot while driving in a car. Israeli forces say they're looking for Palestinian suspects. When that happened, in the context of how tense everything in the West Bank is anyway, all the Palestinians in, in the area knew that they had to be kind of prepared for retaliation attacks. Revenge, the price tag attack, came a few hours later in a clutch of villages. One was Huara, another was Zatara. Bethan was there in the aftermath and residents told her what had happened. Basically around sunsets, there was this initial group of about 40 settlers carrying weapons and knives and iron bars who walked up this road to the gates which the villagers shut and began taunting the people who lived inside saying that they wanted revenge you know calling for them to leave and people who were there said that the numbers grew up to about a hundred settlers and two cars full of IDF soldiers and at one point One of the soldiers did try to get some of the settlers to move down the hill and it wasn't very clear from anyone I spoke to what happened next, but some of the settlers started shooting. It seems maybe some of the soldiers started shooting and this one man, Sama Altush, he was shot in the stomach and because the army wouldn't clear the road so an ambulance could get to him, he ended up bleeding to death. Palestinian authorities say that one person has died during a riot by Israeli settlers in the West Bank. They say a group of settlers set fire to cars and some 30 homes. That was just... People were saying they were setting houses and businesses on fire without knowing or checking whether anyone was inside. Several families had to be evacuated um, before their houses burned down. 
It was just complete chaos. If you haven't been paying attention, this rampage through Palestinian villages on Sunday might look like yet another grim episode in an endless conflict. But pay attention. Right now is one of the most dangerous times in Israel and Palestine in decades. The occupied West Bank is on the edge of a full-blown war that some say has already started. At the same time, Israel is erupting in some of the largest anti-government protests in its history. These look like two different crises, but at their root is the same force. A group of Israeli extremists who were on the fringes for decades and now find themselves at the very heart of government. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a crisis on all fronts in Israel and Palestine. Bethan, we've become tragically used to these kinds of clashes between Israelis and Palestinians. Why is what we've seen over the past few days in places like Huara and in the West Bank over the past few months so concerning? In Huara, they're a bit more used to isolated incidents like gunfights or physical fights or car rammings, but they've never had an organised march of around 300, 400 Israeli settlers, you know, walk all the way up the main road from the south to the north of what is, you know, quite a small village and just basically lay waste to everything. I mean, it's the frequency of attacks and violence and it's also the number of casualties. So far in 2023, we have had about 63 Palestinians and 13 Israelis killed. And that builds on 2022, where I think about 150 Palestinians were killed and about 29 Israelis. And those are numbers that, you know, we haven't seen since the Second Intifada back in the 2000s, which was basically, you know, a war between Palestinian factions and the Israeli state. Everybody's very worried that if it continues at this level of intensity that it's going to tip into basically another chapter of full-scale conflict. And arguably, you could already say that we're there. It doesn't look like a, a war or an intifada that we've had here before, but the numbers suggest that it is already definitely a new chapter of fighting. And how was the news of what took place in Huara over the weekend received in Israel? I think... Most Israelis were really shocked by what they saw unfolding. You know, most Israelis, they might kind of tacitly accept or support the occupation, but they're not right-wing settler extremists. So I think being confronted with what the occupation looks like in a way that they couldn't look away from, I think has really, really shocked I mean, even right-wing commentators were kind of likening this to Kristallnacht when, you know, the Nazis uh, went on a pogrom against Jewish community in the 1930s. Wow. I mean, that is an astonishing comparison for for Israelis to make, given that they know that the gravity of of Kristallnacht. You said that this was perpetrated by the right-wing settler movement. Can you tell me about who that movement is? What role they play in this really complicated conflict? We call it the settler movement, but it's not like a homogenous thing. There's about 700,000 Jewish Israelis living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which is 
also occupied by Israel. And that number is growing all the time. And there is an element of these settlers, many of them, you know, they see themselves living in the West Bank, which they call Judea and Samaria, as a kind of religious calling to restore the historical land of Israel back to the Jewish people. It's a really kind of messianic kind of extremist way of looking at the world. And a lot of them are very violent. They think that this mission must be achieved by any means possible. So as you can imagine, that often has pretty negative consequences for the Palestinian communities living there. What do you want to see them do? First of all, legalize any communities that aren't legalized yet. Like this one? Like this one and a lot more. And build as much more homes as we can. What you're doing here, building homes here, it's colonialism, isn't it? It's our forefathers' country. This is our country and anywhere you'll dig and you'll find Jewish homes. That's what you'll find here. And have they always felt as emboldened as they clearly feel in this moment? The Sessler movement has been growing since 1967, which is when Israel began the occupation of the Palestinian territories. But over the decades, the Israeli political sphere has become far more right-wing and the Sessler movement has been growing. And there are actually a lot of very wealthy people attached to this now because the vineyards and the farming of dates and other crops in the West Bank, that is a financial draw. So it's been drawing investment from people, you know, in mainstream Israel. And those lines are becoming kind of more blurred. So as the Sessler's have been like accruing both economic and political capital, they have kind of transformed from being this kind of fringe, embarrassing movement that kind of undermines mainstream Israeli policy to they're almost seen, I think, by elements of the Israeli army and the security establishment and Israeli politicians as kind of like a like a wing in the in the battle against the Palestinians. It's like they've outsourced some of the dirty work to this community. And as a result, you know, they turn a blind eye to violent incidents, to land theft, that kind of thing, because everybody's working towards the same goal. You know, you could argue about where the movement started getting even more violent. But I mean, I could generally trace it back to Donald Trump being very supportive of Israel's right wing. So they kind of took that as a green light to do what they want in the West Bank. And today I am taking historic action to promote Israel's ability to defend itself and really to have a very powerful, very strong national security, which they're entitled to have. And now, a couple of years later, there are settlers who are basically now holding very important cabinet posts in Israel's new government. So the settlers are the government now, you know, they, they kind of know that they can do what they want. This is a market change, you know, this is the, there's no fig leaf anymore. These guys, these guys are running the show at this point. We've covered one of these settlers, one of the guys running the show on a previous episode of Today in Focus. That was Itamar Ben-Gavir, a convicted racist who's now Israel's national security minister. And we've seen in recent days another one, Bezalel Smotrich, who 
in the aftermath of the riots in Huara, called for the village to be completely wiped off the map, which drew a rare rebuke from the US government. I want to be very clear about this. Uh, these comments were irresponsible, they were repugnant, they were disgusting, and just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. Smotrich is not only Israel's finance minister, he's also got a high-level defence ministry role that gives him power over the Palestinians. Tell me about him and this power that he now has. This guy basically has spent a lot of his life documenting Palestinian activity and building in the West Bank and trying to get their homes and their structures demolished and trying to get Palestinians uh, arrested by reporting their behaviour to, to the army. You know, that's basically been his career to date. And he also, because of this portfolio in the defence ministry that he fought for, that basically gives him control of the civil administration side of the Israeli army's control of the West Bank. He is a civilian politician with control of policy making in the West Bank, you know, like it's it's a real shift here from military control to de facto Israeli government control. Okay, and the reason these guys have any power is because of a politician we've also covered many times in the past, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister who came back to office last year in coalition with these settler leaders. Which brings us to the second crisis you've been covering, Bethan, the one inside Israel, where over recent weeks there have been huge demonstrations that people have been calling an Israeli spring. Why are so many people turning out in the streets? I mean, they're turning out on the streets because they're afraid that their society is about to turn into an illiberal, selective democracy like Turkey or Hungary or Poland. Right, but they don't feel that way because of anything that's happening to the Palestinians, right? No, not at all. Basically, this new government is trying to neuter Israel's Supreme Court, which plays this really outsized role in the kind of checks and balances on government because Israel doesn't have a formal constitution and it doesn't have a second legislative chamber like a Senate or something. They call it, you know, judicial reform. They want to new to the Supreme Court because they see it as a left-wing biased institution that discriminates against them and, and their ideals. They want the government to have more power over appointing who sits on the Supreme Court. So they want to politicize it in that sense. And they also want to bring in an override clause. That would mean that a simple majority in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, could basically overturn any law, even a Supreme Court ruling, which basically, you know, kind of erodes the whole system because it basically means it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says anymore. You know, that's a really scary prospect for anybody living in a country like Israel, which is, like I say, you know, really polarised. Things like women's rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, all those things are now basically under threat because... This new administration prioritizes Israel's Jewish character over its democratic character. So what they're pushing for here is to remove one of the significant checks on the Israeli parliament's power. And 
understandably, people fear that if that happens, this government, led by the right wing with these extremist settlers in powerful positions, will have untrammeled power to enact its agenda. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's pretty much it. Now, you know, the rights and the lifestyles of mainstream Jewish Israelis who see themselves as centrist or liberal um, are under threat. You know, they've taken to the streets in protest because if if the reforms go through, Israel is going to change dramatically um, and it will be hard for its allies to keep defending it as a, you know, democratic place where people's rights are respected and there's the rule of law. Bethan, you've been attending some of these protests that have taken place. How significant have they been? The protests are massive. There's never really been anything like this in Israeli society. We came here to protest against the degradation of the Israeli democracy. We see a, a process where the rights of the people will be over time consumed by this theocratic government and we want to avoid that. I was talking like hundreds of thousands of people going out, marching in the streets of all of Israel's major cities every Saturday night, also coming to Jerusalem and protesting outside the Knesset on days where this controversial legislation is being discussed on the Knesset floor. So on Wednesday, The protest movement declared a day of disruptions. Undeterred by the heavy police presence and stun grenades, protesters blocked roads and scuffled with police in Tel Aviv on Wednesday morning, incensed by a controversial plan to overhaul the Israeli judicial system. People blocked roads and public transport systems. They didn't go to work. They didn't go to school. I mean, the idea was to uh, show the politicians, to show the, the administration that, you know, they're willing to disrupt daily life if these reforms go ahead. And Bethan, how much are these proposals to defang the power of the Supreme Court dividing Israeli society, not just the people protesting, but the military, all of the institutions of the country? Really high-ranking members of the establishment, right? Like former um, Shin Bet heads, former Mossad officials, former IDF officials, as well as reservists, um, are all saying, you know, I'm not going to do my army service. I'm not going to respond if I'm called up for service because I don't want to support this government and what this government is trying to do. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a real sea change. Some reservists, like, took a tank and rolled it down a main street in one Israeli town. I mean, that's never happened before. You know, security or, like, the need for Israeli security is kind of like the glue that holds a lot of these very polarized groups in Israel together. And even that, we're seeing, you know, huge divisions over. So, Bethan, These appear to be two distinct crises, one happening in the West Bank and one happening in Israel itself. But from what you're telling us, they have this common link, which is the increasing power of this settler movement, this group that 
you said, for so long were marginal in Israeli politics, seen as a bit of an embarrassment. But they don't seem to be marginal anymore. No, they're not marginal anymore. They are the third largest party in the government. They have risen to a position where they are now the mainstream and their ideas and what they want and their agenda is now the political mainstream. Once that genie is out of the bottle, I think it's really hard to put it back in. I mean, we've seen that in a lot of other kind of developed democracies around the world in the last 10 years, right? It's it's the march rightwards. And the fact that the rise of these right-wing extremists is playing out in such different ways. I mean, it, as you say, right, it looks like two distinct separate crises, you know, massive protests by Jewish Israelis against the Supreme Court reforms and settler violence and a rising death toll in the West Bank. But they're basically two sides of the same coin. You know, it's the rise of the right wing that has enabled both of these things to happen. Coming up, with a far-right government in charge, what's next for Israel and for the Palestinians? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Bethan, you're talking to us now from Gaza, and you've just spent the past few days in the West Bank. What does this new reality of the Israeli government mean for Palestinians? People are very worried by the rise in in violence and by the fact that these IDF raids we've been seeing in the West Bank, you know, they they started under the last government and they are continuing under this government. And this government has even fewer qualms about disrupting Palestinian life 
I mean, life under occupation is already very difficult, right? Um, I think people are realising that it's about to get worse. If the government managed to do some of the things they want to do, like um, bringing back the death penalty or stripping people of their residency or citizenship rights or loosening the the rules of engagement for Israeli police and soldiers, I mean, those are going to have, you know immediate impactful effects on on Palestinians you know life is going to get more dangerous and more difficult and then there's kind of like another school of thought amongst some Palestinians which is you know okay this is pretty terrible but at the same time you know the the fig leaf is gone um you know Palestinians have been saying for decades that Israel is not a fully democratic place because of the occupation and because of the way the Palestinian minority that lives in Israel are treated. Some people are kind of, you know, they're taking heart from the fact that there's no fig leaf anymore, you know, like an Israeli centrist or liberal administration can kind of keep the occupation going, but say, you know, we respect human rights and we've got a strong Supreme Court and, you know, you don't need to take Israel to the International Criminal Court because we've got a good system of checks and balances and, and upholding rights and investigations here. But now, you know, that might be changing, in which case it's going to be impossible for the rest of the world to look at the situation here and not see it for what it is, which is a really brutal and violent oppression of an entire people. And internationally, how is this being seen? These these rightward shifts, the increasing domination of the government by the settler movement. What is it doing to Israel's reputation, not just among foreign governments, but also in the business world? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, Israel has managed to become this high-tech hub. Um, you know, the startup nation is is uh, a nickname that gets used a lot. But that is that is changing. I think something like 90% of the tech scene's capital in Israel comes from foreign sources. And, you know, investors don't want to put their money in a country where it's not clear the rule of law is respected. So we're seeing, to some extent, not a huge extent yet, some of uh, Israel's tech scene moving their money and moving their personnel out from Tel Aviv to, to other places. I wouldn't call it like an exodus yet, but one person I know described it as kind of Brexit light. <laughs> and we're seeing, you know, the shekel has been damaged. And it's a very small club of countries where, you know, government policy manages to decrease the value of your own currency. Bethan, you told us earlier that for many years, Israel's settler movement was on the fringes, seen as an embarrassment, but tolerated because most of what they did didn't harm Israelis. It was directed at Palestinians. But it hasn't stayed that way. The settler movement is is coming home, in effect, to Israel, seeking to change the character of the country. And I wonder if Israelis understand this as a reckoning, that this force that they allowed to operate somewhere else and thought would never come home now has. Unfortunately, I don't really think that the penny has dropped. There's such a huge disconnect between the way a lot of Jewish Israelis see their country and the occupation. They think, you know, the Palestinian territories are nothing to do with them. 
they think the occupation is nothing to do with them. They don't see, you know, their lifestyles on the Mediterranean in Tel Aviv as being connected to the lifestyles just a few dozen kilometers down the coast to the way people live in Gaza. You know, they, they, they do not see it. Even in the protests, right, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem that I've been to, you know, some of the protest leaders and organizers that I've spoken to, you know, I asked them about this. I was like, could this be a broader movement? Could you connect the Supreme Court and this right-wing government to um, the oppression of the Palestinians in the territories? And the answer is, you know, while we sympathize, we need to keep the protests on topic. Like, if we try and broaden it into an anti-occupation thing, we're going to alienate large sections of Israeli society who think that it's necessary. There's very little sense yet that all of this is happening as a result of the occupation, as a result of allowing the right wing to rise and allowing the right wing to do what it wants. But I think those chickens are coming home to roost now. So it's really unclear what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, months, years. But it is a really unprecedented and volatile time, both in Israel and in the Palestinian territories. Bethan, thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Bethan McKernan, whose coverage of the events in Israel and in Palestine you can follow at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Ktena. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.